Hello and welcome to the Indie Reformed Podcast. My name is Austin Rifle, and I am the church planting intern serving among the core group of believers here at the Indie Reformed Church Plant. Indie Reformed is a plant of the United Reformed Churches of North America, and we're overseen by or a mission work of Zeltenreich Reformed Church. Uh, we as a group are in the core group development phase, and what that means is that we're having weekly Bible studies together and continuing to grow and to develop as a group as we look forward to, Lord willing, seeing a URC church planted in the Indianapolis metropolitan area. Um, so one of the ways that you can help support the work is by simply spreading the word. So if you have friends or family or acquaintances in the area that are uh, looking for a Reformed Church, uh, please send them our information. You can also reach out to us and give us their information. We'd love to reach out, make contact with them, invite them to our weekly Bible study or meet up with them in some other capacity, care for them in any any way that we we can. Uh, So please help us by one, spreading the word and uh, continuing in prayer for us, continuing that the uh, to pray that the Lord would provide direction and clarity as we move forward. Uh, so we're currently meeting in um, our living room, but um, growing at a, a fast pace and to where the, our living room is a bit too small. So one of our immediate needs in terms of prayer requests is that the Lord would provide a public gathering place. So you could remember that in prayer and I'm looking forward to providing updates to you as well as we continue to grow and as the work unfolds before us. Um, so it's a joy to be serving among the Indie Performed Core Group at this point and uh, look forward to seeing what the Lord has for our future. Um, one of the ways in which we are growing together is by having, as I mentioned, a Sunday evening Bible study. We are working through the book of Ephesians. And so you can find our studies, which are recorded on the podcast. You can find, so far we've worked through Ephesians chapter 1, and we're gearing up to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, starting next week. So um, take a listen to those previous episodes, and feel free to reach out with any questions or comments that uh, you may have there with with that uh, wonderful chapter and look forward to getting into the the next chapter um, being chapter two. And we're also, as a group, we are thinking hard about the concept, the very important idea of worship. And um, most specifically in these, this last week, what it is that's happening when we gather for worship. And the way that we are um, doing that together is by reading a book entitled What Happens When We Worship written by a pastor in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church by the name of Jonathan Landry Cruz. And so Cruz is really laying out a theology of worship, and then he gets into some elements of worship, goes through a a breakdown of a typical Reformed liturgy and why it is that we do what we do in worship, what's happening in each element of our worship. And so it's really a wonderful book that has helped us to think hard about our theology of worship. And the reason why that's important for us as a core group is because We are now in this development phase, but we're looking forward to eventually calling public worship services. And so it's best that we think hard about what's going to be happening when we gather for corporate worship. How is corporate worship different from our private worship? How is corporate worship a little bit different from what we're doing now with a a Bible study? And um, so some of the working out some of those questions and seeing what scripture has to say about some of those questions. And then, and, and, and then really, looking at um, what can we expect when we gather for worship, which is a wonderful question to think about, uh, because what we find is that the God of the universe has called us to worship, and he's also promised to meet us there. And so our expectation is quite high when we gather for corporate worship, knowing that the God who created all things and the God who 
now upholds all things by the word of his power. It is he who has called us to worship. And with that in mind, we are struck with awe and we are struck with excitement and anticipation, knowing that that's who it is that we're going to meet with, um, namely God himself, who gives himself to us in in worship. And so um, that's been a great help for our group in terms of going through this book. And and, uh, what we're doing is on the third Sunday of each month, we're taking a break from our um, consideration of the book of Ephesians, our study through Ephesians, and we're looking at a couple of chapters from Pastor Cruz is what happens when we worship. And to follow each discussion on the book, I will um, basically produce a podcast episode working through some of the things that we brought out in the discussion, maybe following up on some particular questions that came up in that discussion. So I hope that it's helpful to you as um, you begin to think through a theology of worship and um, consider what it is that's happening when, when we worship. And so I've already kind of laid the groundwork for why it is that we're studying this work, given that we are a group that is eventually going to be calling um, or worship services will be called by our overseeing church. And um, then we'll be gathering for corporate worship. And so it's best that we work out some of these things together in terms of what does the word say about worship. And one of the the backgrounds for why this is important, especially now today in, in our current church uh, context is because, as you're aware, if if you look around and um, have a pulse on the church at large, I'm going to paint with a, a broad brush here. This isn't true of every church. It's not true of every denomination. But at large, there is a um, really a fundamental difference with how church, uh, how worship may have been done in the past and how worship is currently being conducted today. And um, mainly, I, I would say what we see in our um, current church culture, which this didn't happen overnight. Um, there, there's much history behind this movement. There's much history and um, elements that went into causing what we see around us today. But what we certainly see is that worship is more about an individual personal experience than it is about a corporate gathering with the covenant people of God. Um, that That's kind of a just a, a given as we look around. It's It's more about what can I get out of this? And I want to have my personal, my personal preferences satisfied. And if I'm not satisfied in my personal preferences, then it's easy for me to just go down to the street, go down the street to the next church that may be able to please me in a certain way. Um, so it's it's heavily influenced worship that is by the personal preferences of those who are sitting in worship and. Even as I say that, even 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 if I just say worship, uh, what many people would think of, and and I know um, I was there at, at one point in my Christian life as well, is there was a segment of the service that was deemed worship, right? And that was typically when the band would get up and they would play um, several songs. And that was the time in which we were worshiping. That was the worship time. They were the worship band. And once the band got off the stage, that the worship segment had ended. And so I want to just make a quick note right up front is when I, when I talk about, or when I say worship, um, just like Pastor Cruz will note in his work, uh, when we talk about worship, we are talking about the entirety of the service. We are talking about from beginning to end, when we gather with God's people on the Lord's day, God calls us to worship. That is the the start of the worship service. God begins by calling us. 
and the end of the worship service ends with a benediction. Um, it ends with God giving us a final word um, as, as we are then sent out. So that entire time that we are there is the worship service. And so that's just a quick note when we think about worship. But it has to be said because um, in our context, oftentimes worship can be thought of in, in just that, um, that segment of the worship service where the, the band is on the stage playing the music. And be, because of that, um, that's one of the things that has played into the individual's experience taking precedence over the corporate gathering aspect of, of worship. And so the individual's experience and satisfaction, that's become the standard. Um, and because it's become the standard, it's led to the use of gimmicks and tricks and entertaining people. And um, in fact, Pastor Cruz works out th- where, where some of this began is with Charles Finney. And what Charles Finney did was he was confident that if he, he employed the, the right methods, if he did the right stuff, it would elicit a particular response from those sitting in the pews. And so he knew, and he even claims, as Cruz will quote him, he claims that there's nothing supernatural about this. It's, it's all um, philosophical. It's, it's all, we do this and this happens. It's a method. Um, and so that's a telling thing that if we can trace some of this back to Finney, we can see that this is where it began in some ways in, in terms of the use of gimmicks and tricks, that there's nothing supernatural about that. But if you do these right things, then the people respond. Um, that's kind of the context in which we live in our current church culture. Um, so being aware of that will help us as we then begin to consider what Scripture has to say about worship, which I would say is contrary to what we see a lot of the times in um, some of the, the churches around us today. Um, but it's also led to, so for one, it's led to the use of gimmicks and tricks, right? But it's also led to great doubt, uh, great doubt in the Christian life. Because what happens is, as we'll find out as we continue through this book, is that God has created us to worship him. And he's also called us to worship, meaning that he has promised to meet us there, and we are coming to worship him, the Lord of heaven and earth. Yet in the church culture at large, again, painting a broad brush, this isn't true with every church and every denomination, painting a broad uh, brush, so so bear with me in in these uh, broad claims. In the church at large, people are coming to worship, and then they are led in worshiping themselves, which has led to spiritual malnourishment. So you see how that works, is there's this, this use of gimmicks and tricks, People are by nature worshipers. God has called them to worship, and so they're coming, yet all they're doing during that time is they're worshiping themselves, and oftentimes they don't know it. And so then they are spiritually malnourished because they're having all of their the uh, personal preference box checked, but they are not actually receiving from the Lord in the way that God has promised to meet us in worship, meaning that God has provided means by which he's promised to be there. And so churches aren't... Um, using those means 
so to say. And so people are worshiping themselves and then that leads to their spiritual malnourishment. So in other words, the object of worship has flipped. It's flipped from the creator to the creature. And that sounds a lot like Romans one. And, and uh, that can be characteristic of, of several churches that we see around us today. So there's a deeper concern of worshiping self than there is with worshiping the Lord of heaven and earth. And this is one of the basic things that we have to grasp when we think about a theology of worship is how does worship look today and, and how is it different from what the word says about worship? Because when you step into a reformed worship service, it looks um, drastically different from when you step into the mega, mega church with a, a massive building, a huge uh, worship band. And, uh, and and Pastor Cruz will get into some of that when he talks about what's called the entertainment aesthetic. And so uh, we need to recognize that as a reformed church, a reformed church plant, we we look a bit different, and that's okay, uh, because we recognize that there are certain elements of worship that God has commanded in his word. There are certain things that uh, for a worship service to be happening, there are certain things that have to be there, uh, the substance of our worship, really. Um, we recognize that it's God who's calling us, and, and when we come, we're meeting with him, um, and that he also regulates, and he dictates how we worship him, and he's given us that regulation in his word. So we look to his word and we see what has God commanded in worship. And that also means that we don't bring into worship what God has not commanded us to bring in. So he has not commanded us to be creative in how we worship him. In fact, he's been quite clear of how we ought to worship him because he has set the standard. And this is the beautiful point here is that because he set the standard, he has promised to meet us there. He's promised to meet us there, yes, in a specific way, through specific means. But will we employ those means, word and sacrament? We are meeting with the triune God, and that creates great expectation. It creates great assurance. It creates joy and excitement, knowing that we're coming to worship to meet God who's promised to be there, and we find him there when we come in the way that he has told us to meet him namely how he has regulated our worship in his word. And so the Lord defines how his people are, are to respond to him, um, and he determines and directs our worship. And this is, this is a hard point uh, for us to grasp because we want to be autonomous. And um, who are you to say what God has said about worship? And that's where we, this is not me saying this, don't, don't take my word for it. Um, we ought to go back to scripture and see what the text has to say um, uh, about how we worship God. But uh, one of the places that we can look to, um, it, just to get a basic idea of why we do what we do in worship and why we're, we're very um, particular about how we worship God, is because God does tell us in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, let me just get to Hebrews chapter 12 here. So um, talking about Hebrews chapter 12, I'm, I'm looking here um, through the verses. So um, verse 28 of Hebrews chapter 4, or rather Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God, listen, is a consuming fire. So with that verse alone, we pause and we think, okay, we ought to offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe because he is a consuming fire. So if that's true, what's acceptable worship? 
What does it mean to have reverence and awe? And that's where God has not left us in the dark. He has not said, worship me with reverence and awe and worship me in an acceptable way and then left us to figure that out, to be creative and find out how we ought to worship him. No, he's told us. He's told us to come and that he meets us through his word through the visible word, meaning the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, uh, gathering with the saints and offering our prayers to God. Um, This is the way in which he meets with us. And we commune with him, but we also commune with fellow believers as we gather. And so that's kind of the the basics of our theology of worship. And now if we get into some of the particulars of the book, um, what Pastor Cruz, he's writing from this premise. He's writing the basic premise that he's writing from. He tells us on page one, he says, quote, something is happening when we worship. Something happens to us, something happens between us and the people we worship with, and most importantly, something happens between us and God. And so he is making the claim, which Scripture makes clear, that what's happening in worship is supernatural. Why? Because he says on page two, quote, the God of the universe appears and meets with his people, and by his sovereign and gracious power, he changes them, end quote. So the God of the universe who is a supernatural being. He's the one that's meeting with his people. And by his sovereign and gracious power, he's he's changing them. So with that in mind, uh, we can think of some of the obstacles, because I, I said a fair bit about how the church at large um, finds themselves worshiping God, but we want to be careful um, to not think that we are um, above that in any way, because we too are influenced by some of the obstacles in our current environment. That's a um, we're fiends for entertainment. Uh, we are bombarded by multimedia, and so oftentimes those things can creep into uh, the way that we come to worship. And so it, th- those things can decrease our attention span, uh, span because we've been flooded. Making ourselves aware of that can help us to. Um, combat some of those things. Um, Not that entertainment is bad in and of itself, um, but there's times where our uh, fiending for those things impedes on how uh, we do come to worship. So just being aware of those things, I think Pastor Cruz is helpful here. Uh, Being aware of those things helps us to understand why we may be wanting to be entertained um, and recognizing that we aren't coming to worship to be entertained, but rather we're coming to meet with the Almighty God. And that is no bore, let me tell you. Meeting with the Almighty God, there is nothing boring about that. And I think Pastor Cruz makes a great case by basically saying, if we understood what's truly happening at worship, we would come with a different mindset. We would come with joy and excitement and anticipation, knowing that the God of the universe has called us and that we get to meet him there. And so what Cruz does in in chapter one is he works through these two aesthetics that he calls the entertainment aesthetic and the mystical aesthetic. And the entertainment aesthetic is really what I I spent some time discussing, how the church has compromised in some ways for the purpose of elevating the personal experience. And so doing things in worship that God has not commanded that we do in order for the purpose or or for the purpose of pleasing those who are in the audience and making them feel good and making them want to come back because it feels a lot like um, a Saturday night movie than it does church. And so um, if you can just entertain the people, then they'll stick. They'll keep coming because it's fun. Um, So that's one end of the spectrum. But then on the other end of the spectrum is the mystical aesthetic. And this is where we often find um, this pull and a draw 
towards the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Roman Catholic Church is because there is a mystical element. Um, There's an element of mystery in our worship, yes. And so where the mystical aesthetic differs from, say, a, a Reformed worship service is that though we would affirm that there's something mystical taking place, nonetheless, we're meeting with the triune Lord, something supernatural is happening. What we don't want to do is go and try to peek behind the curtain and say, this is what's happening, and this is how we can go ahead and feel and actually experience that supernatural um, by doing these particular things. And so what Cruz says on page eight, he says, quote, but there's a problem when we think that we need to go through these motions to achieve anything meaningful in worship. When that is the case, we're basically trying to push the buttons to get God to respond to us and trying too hard to look behind into the mystical element of worship rather than just being okay with saying that there is a mystical element, but we don't need to know exactly how it works and how we can manipulate that that mysticism. And so Cruz shows us how there's a pull and a draw to both the entertainment aesthetic and the mystical aesthetic. And so what he's doing in the book, he, he's wanting to remedy Page nine, quote, this book seeks to remedy that ignorance and indifference um, that have plagued and continue to plague many worshiping Christians. So he's wanting to make us aware that there's oftentimes ignorance. Oftentimes Christians aren't really aware of what's happening when they gather for worship. Or there's indifference. Christians aren't interested in knowing what's happening in worship. They don't, they don't care um, to know what's happening in worship. And so ignorance is a major problem for us when we come to worship, because if we aren't careful to think about what's taking place when we gather for worship, it's easy for us to just go through the motions or to check the box and not to recognize that we're meeting with our triune Lord who has called us. So knowing and having a deep conviction that the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, he actually meets us. um, And that creates great excitement, but it also gives us a sense of certainty in some way. A sense, sense of certainty in, in, in what I mean by that is we know that where the word is preached, where the sacraments are rightly administered, where church discipline is rightly practiced, there we have a true church, and that's where God meets his people. He has promised to be there. So we can be certain that when we go to worship on the Lord's Day, gathering with the saints, God will be there. We can be certain of that. Because the Lord has revealed himself and he's promised to meet with us and to nourish us when we gather for worship. And this means that we don't have to seek God in places that he hasn't promised to meet us. Uh, We can have full assurance and confidence that where the people of God are gathered, the word is preached and sang and prayed and visibly administered, there our God is in the midst of his assembly. And that, Christian, should bring great assurance to you, knowing that when you prepare, as you prepare to go to worship this Lord's Day coming up, God's called you there. And you can be certain that he'll he'll meet you there, um, and you can see how that's much different than the personal preferences being elevated over the corporate assembly um, aspect. And ha- as I mentioned before, because of the personal preferences being elevated, Christians are malnourished because they're coming to be entertained rather than being told that God has called us and let's go to His Word and see what He's revealed about Himself. Um, and that's how God nourishes us, is through those means, the preaching of his word, um, his word, word sang and prayed and administered to us visibly in the sacraments, knowing that God meets us in and through those things. And so in chapter two, 
uh, what Cruz does is he then says, based on that, okay, if that's true, if we're meeting a, if, if our meeting with God on the Lord's Day is supernatural, because he is a supernatural being and he's called us and um, and, and he's meeting the, us there uh, by his spirit, we are communing with the triune God there on the Lord's Day and we are participating in the heavenly assembly, even who is continually worshiping. Um, if that's true, then chapter two has already been set up and he says, makes the claim, worship is the most important thing that we'll ever do. Worship is the most important thing that we'll ever do is what he says. And, and so he, he breaks it down into two reasons. Why is it the most important thing where we will ever do? Well, he breaks it down by saying that there is one, an internal design. And two, there is an eternal destiny when it comes to worship. And so this internal design, he's getting at the census divinitas or the sense of divinity or the sense of deity. And what that means is that we all have this sense of the deity that is in us by nature, being made in the image of God. We know that God exists, yet as unbelievers, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness because God has revealed himself in and through nature or natural revelation. And so they know that there's a God and they're without excuse is what Romans 1 says, because God has made it known to them and clear to them that God does exist. And so that's the internal design. And that also means that knowing that God exists, that means that we are by by design worshipers and that we'll worship things that we find most dear to us. Um, This is why we need to be reoriented. Uh, We need to be remade um, into heartfelt worshipers, worshipers of our God, of our creator. It's, as Cruz said, says, quote, it's what we were made for and the thing we are being remade for. Romans 1, he brings out an interesting note, Pastor Cruz does. He, he notes that it's not just Christians. It's not just those who have been remade and are being remade that are worshipers, but rather it's all humanity. Romans 1 does not say believers worship the creator and then doesn't say anything about the unbeliever. No, actually what it's talking about in Romans 1, what Paul's doing is he's talking about the unbeliever. And he says they worship the creature rather than the creator. They exchange creator worship for creature worship. So he's saying by nature, they are worshipers. So that's what he's getting at with internal design. That's why um, or why worship is the most important thing that we'll ever do is because we have been created to worship. Now, the next thing is this eternal destiny. Eternal destiny, destiny means that our lives in heaven will be uh, full of different things, right? We'll be doing many different things in heaven as, as we can see from the text of scripture, but the supreme task will be worshiping our holy God. Um, is is the note that Cruz makes. We are we will be worshiping our holy and majestic God, and that's the supreme task. Uh, we will be in continual and ever present worship of our God, and that's why we can say that worship is the most important thing that we'll ever do because we'll never stop worshiping. Uh, we will continue worshiping in eternity because we will be beholding our God and worshiping Him um, in His presence and uh, continuing to do so for uh, forever, which is great news for the believer as we, we long and look forward to that day where we'll uh, behold our, our Savior. And so what's the difference then between 
corporate worship, gathering with the saints on the Lord's Day, how is that different from, from private worship? Um, you waking up, reading your Bible in the morning, or um, finding a time of prayer, having family worship, gathering for a Bible study with fellow believers, um, th- those things are um, private worship in, in the sense that um, you are doing that by yourself or with your family, and uh, there's a difference between that and corporate worship. And it's important to make this distinction uh, because Scripture makes these distinctions, right? We see that the overwhelmingly, um, or the overwhelming emphasis in Scripture is corporate worship. We see God calling a people to worship. He gives chapters on tabernacle worship, tabernacle, how it ought to be set up, how he ought to be worshiped, how the people would come and gather for worship. And then again, with temple worship, there's chapters on how the temple should be set up and how the people should come and and gather for worship. And with this, this emphasis on corporate worship, we see that that has priority. This is a hard one for, for us in our modern day of thinking, because again, we want to be autonomous. And so when you tell me that corporate worship has priority over private worship, um, what you're telling me is that I cannot be autonomous. And that's offensive because I want to meet with God on my own time. I want to meet with God where um, I think that I can create a space where God will speak to me in private because I'm an individual being and I can do what I want. Um, that's kind of the the basis for elevating private worship over corporate worship. Now, I want to be extremely clear here, I, because what I'm not saying is that private worship isn't important. So please don't hear me saying that, because private worship is it's extremely important. I mean, our Bible reading, for instance, our um, prayers, those are all necessary for the Christian life. And that's some of the ways in which we grow in the Christian life is through private worship, no doubt. What I am saying is that there is an emphasis in Scripture on corporate worship, and there is a priority placed on corporate worship. And so we, we, though we want to hold private worship um, in, in an important, we want to say that it's important, but we want to say that it's import, important in its proper place. Because what happens if you elevate private worship over corporate worship, eventually corporate worship becomes undermined, and why not just stop going altogether? Um, if private worship has the priority, um, well, God emphasizes that we ought to come with a people and gather with a people because we belong. We are a kingdom of priests, as Peter says in First Peter chapter 2. We are a holy nation, and that's who he's called. He's called us as the kingdom of priests to come and to gather for corporate worship. And so we say that private worship is important, yet corporate worship has the priority. And that really simply means that your private worship is motivated by what happens on the Lord's Day, right? So you gather for corporate worship, and that sets the tone for what happens for the rest of your week in terms of your private worship. Um, it's not the other way around where our private worship is setting the tone for our corporate worship. So you can think of corporate worship as the engine behind your motivation for uh, private worship in some ways. That analogy breaks down, but um, you can think of it in, in that way. So we don't want to undermine the importance of private worship. Our own personal prayer, Bible reading, and family worship are all good things. They're important things that contribute to our growth and growth in the Christian life. But what we do want to do is we want to put private worship in 
the proper place of of um, elevating corporate worship to where we don't undermine gathering with the saints. And so, what does what does uh, Scripture say about this? And um, I've already mentioned that Scripture emphasizes corporate worship, and it means that we can look to places in Scripture where we see this emphasis on on corporate gathering, right? And it's hard for us to look. Um, and find places where there's an emphasis on private worship because we just don't we don't find it there because private worship is really assumed as to be an outworking and an overflow of what happens when we gather with the saints on the Lord's day. So here's a small defense. There's several places that we could go, but where Cruz takes us, which I think is helpful, is he takes us to the scenes in Revelation. And so there's several scenes in Revelation that show us a picture of what goes on in heaven. And remember, this is all under the subheading of the eternal destiny. So thinking about the difference between public and private, uh, we're thinking about our eternal destiny. So what will we be doing in heaven continually, right, helps us answer the question why corporate worship is has priority over private worship. Well, it's because we're going to be worshiping corporately eternally. So corporate worship is a picture of what goes on in heaven. And we see this in the scenes of Revelation. When we gather for corporate worship, we're participating in by the Spirit in the heavenly assembly. And that that causes great awe, right? Um, We are participating in the heavenly assembly when we gather for corporate worship. So you can see that alone is a great enough argument to see that there is a priority of corporate worship over private worship. The Old Testament often speaks of the people of God as as a congregation or an assembly, um, and then we see the New Testament doing this same thing, speaking of the church or the congregation, the assembly of God. And so, uh, God saves a people. Um, the covenant people of God is is who He calls um, to worship. And so, there's this continuity between the Old Testament congregation or assembly. Continuity between the Old Testament congregation and the New Testament congregation, and so we can see the emphasis on corporate pulled over from the Old Testament to the New. That's a pretty um, clear transition there. And then there's, um, I mean, because we we obviously we see that in Acts chapter two, verse forty-two, what the early church was committing themselves to. So uh, let me just go to Acts two real fast and and um, make that quick note. Um, the early church was devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. But that had to be happening in a corporate setting. How do I know that? Well, I mean, they didn't have Bibles, so that's kind of a big deal. They weren't able to have their private Bible reading and private um, time of worship, as it were, because if they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, that means they were gathering to hear the apostles teach. That means they were gathering for the fellowship. That means they were gathering for the breaking of bread and for the prayers. So you see the emphasis is clearly, I'm working out the continuity between old and new. The emphasis is New Testament, Acts chapter 2, they're devoting themselves to corporate worship. And so that's just the case for the continuity. Um, and then I mentioned First Peter 2, he calls the church a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So there again, we see some continuity. Um, now, the place in which we worship obviously changes, right? That's what John, um, or Jesus says in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. He says, 
um, you worship in this particular place, but there's a time coming when um, all will worship in spirit and in truth. Um, he, he is saying that there's going to be a, a breaking open in some ways. The spirit of God is going to be poured out to the nations. And that means the place in which we worship God is going to be um, changing, right? We don't have to make the journey up to Jerusalem to come to the temple to worship God. No, we can come to the gathering place, and that place doesn't have any bearing on if God is there or not. Um, we can gather with the people of God where ordained ministers and elders are there overseeing and regulating the worship service, and there we can be confident um, that God is going to meet us there. So that's one of the things that's discontinuity between the two, uh, but there is certainly continuity in terms of the emphasis on the corporate element of worship. And then Hebrews chapter 10, of course, Hebrews chapter 10 um, let me go over to Hebrews chapter 10. Um, this is also a, a good place to note this um, congregational element or a corporate element. Starting in verse 19, uh, we have this confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened through us, the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Confession of our hope. This is a corporate element, right? With pure water, uh, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for we for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up, corporate, to love and good works. Here it is, verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So again, emphasis on the corporate gathering. One more, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. What Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, is he's talking about the growth and unity and maturity among the body of believers. And he tells them that God has given gifts to the church, and these gifts are word-based gifts apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. These are all word-based gifts, meaning proclamation gifts, uh, the word proclaimed. All these offices are proclaimers of the word. And so where does the word get proclaimed? Well, it's in the context of corporate worship. And so he's saying, we grow as the body of Christ to mature manhood, right? To the full measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Verse 14, that happens in and through us being changed by the word as it's proclaimed. Where does it happen? Corporate worship. So again, that's just a few places that we can look to to see that there's this emphasis on uh, corporate worship. And that's why, um, just a quick note in terms of our uh, doctrine of the church and the United Reformed Churches of North America, uh, we have a church order that we would um, look to, um, or, or that brings unity, I should say, between our uh, the churches in our federation. We all subscribe to um, certain Reformed confessions, uh, but also we're united by um, our church order. And Article 37 says that the consistory shall call the congregation together for corporate worship twice on each Lord's Day. Why? Well, it's because the uh, we recognize, right? The churches recognize that God has promised to meet us, to nourish us, to change us, to comfort us in the context of corporate worship where we come and we commune with him and also with our fellow believers. That's why it is that the elders and the minister should call the congregation together for corporate worship. And then the consistory, it says in Article 38, shall regulate the worship services, which shall be conducted to the principles taught in God's word. Namely, still quoting here, namely, that the preaching of the word have the central place that confession of sins be made 
praise and thanksgiving and song and prayer be given and gifts of gratitude be offered. And so that's one note in terms of um, what we hold to in the um, URCNA. And the reason why I even bring that up is because we're planting a a church in the URC. So it's important, as we know, as we grow as a group, that we recognize what our, uh, for one, our, our Reformed Confessions say, which are a summary of the scriptures. That's why we subscribe. We subscribe to the confessions because they are an accurate summary or summation of what scripture has to say on these particular doc, um, doctrines. That's why we subscribe. And then our church order brings unity among us as a federation. And then um, also summarizes what um, the the word of God says in terms of, of how we ought to run in terms of our church government. So why is co- corporate worship the most, thing that, uh, most important thing that you'll ever do on this earth? Well, Cruz says on page 23, quote, the wonder of worship is but a small taste of the wonder of the new heavens and the new earth. And it is sufficient to sustain our hearts until we are there. So he's saying, uh, end quote, he's saying that when we gather for worship, we are in some small way tasting the wonders of the new heavens and the new earth. And that taste is sufficient to sustain us until we're there. And so you see, I, I hope that there's a strong um, case made by looking at several of those places in Scripture, why there's an emphasis on corporate rather than private, not neglecting private worship and its importance in our Christian walk in life, but rather just finding the priority with corporate, because that corporate gathering is a taste of what's happening in heaven. And um, Cruz quotes a, a pastor and, and who says, if we could only rip the roof off of where we're meeting, and we could see the heavenly assembly worshiping God as we are participating with them when we gather for corporate worship. That would change how we view what's happening when we gather for worship. Um, That would change the way we think about preparing for worship. It would change how we think about uh, coming to worship. It would change what we're thinking about when we're sitting in worship. Um, So these are all things that we ought to keep in mind as we work out our theology of worship, uh, remembering that it's the God of the universe who has called us, uh, meaning that we can have great assurance and um, certainty, knowing that he is meeting us there in and through his word, um, and he's promised to be there, and we don't have to go seeking him and, and trying to find him in places that he hasn't promised to be. And that also means he hasn't commanded us to be creative. Um, he hasn't commanded us to do things in worship that um, he is not commanded in his word. And so one of the places that we go in terms of our Reformed confessions or catechisms that we subscribe to in the URCNA is uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 96, which asks, what is God's will for us in the second commandment? So really expounding on the second commandment, here's the answer, that we in no way make any image of God nor worship him in any other way that has been commanded in God's word. So that shows the, um, the, the regulation principle of our worship that we, the word regulates um, how we worship God. And then another um, place to go is Heidelberg question and answer 65, um, because we do affirm that it's by grace through faith that we are saved, right? And then um, if we're talking about the emphasis of corporate worship, well, 65 asks or says, it is by faith alone that we share in Christ and all his benefits. Where then does this faith come? And and thinking of, um, I mean, right off the bat, we're thinking Romans 10, right? Verse 17. But the answer is this. The Holy Spirit works it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the Holy Sacraments. So where does the preaching of the Gospel and and the use of the Holy Sacraments happen? Well, it's in the context of corporate worship. 
And so, and again, these confessions and catechisms are a summary of what God's Word teaches, um, and therefore we can see again the emphasis on the corporate um, element of worship, the corporate aspect of our gathering. And so some of the things as we wrap up here in, in terms of conclusion, we've seen that what happens when we worship is that the God of the universe, creator of all, King of kings and Lord of lords, meets us in worship. He calls us, promises to be there, gives himself to us, nourishes us, comforts us, convicts us, changes us into the image of Christ by his word being preached. He works faith in, our, in the heart of the unbeliever. He confirms faith in the heart of the believer. Because of that, then gathering for corporate worship is the most important thing that we'll ever do in this life. So you can see how chapter two really builds on, on chapter one. And so um, that's a few um, things that we covered in our discussion. And um, it's been fun for me to, to think through a theology of worship and to come back to the word and see what God, God's word says about how and why we, we gather. Um, if, if any of this um, struck up some questions for you, I hope it did. Um, I hope it was edifying to you as I worked through the content in Pastor Cruz's work. Again, I'd recommend you picking up the, the book yourself and reading through it um, and then thinking hard about what it is that you're doing when you gather for worship. If you do have any questions, though, p- please feel free uh, to reach out. You can do that through Facebook or Instagram at Indie Reformed. Um, you can also send an email to IndieReformed at gmail.com. Um, I, I do hope that you enjoyed the content today. Uh, stay tuned for next week when we b- will be looking at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Hope you all have a great week, and we will see you soon.